Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome autistic arts maker, writer and voice artist Sumita Majumdar to the podcast. Sumita is a recent graduate of the Creative Arts and Mental Health MSc at Queen Mary, and she brings along the documentary film Being Frank, the Chris Seavey story for our consideration. Joining Sumita for this delve into the world and work of cult musician Frank Sidebottom are regular hosts Alex Widdowson and David Hartley. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Um, Welcome back if you are a regular listener or uh, just welcome if you're a new listener. Uh, If you're new to this podcast, basically, it's very straightforward. Uh, we, We select films that have a kind of autistic interest of some kind we watch them and then uh, we gather and talk about them Um, and we've been featuring quite a lot of special guests over the uh, past few episodes and we've got another special guest today Um, so I myself I'm uh, David Hartley and I'm also joined by regular host Alex Widowson hello hi Alex and we're delighted today as well to be joined by a special guest our special guest for this episode is uh, Samita Majumda who is an autistic writer and is also the voice of the character Ren on uh, the CBB show Pablo. Um, so it's an absolute delight to welcome Samita to the podcast today. So I'm going to hand over to Samita, who is going to just uh, say a few words about the film that we have chosen to look at today. So Samita, whenever you're ready. Hi, <laughs> I'm Samita. Um, I'm a arts maker, writer, person I'm autistic um, and I'm a recent graduate of the MSc creative arts and mental health course at Queen Mary yes yeah, so I'm, ex- I'm excited to been asked to be a part of this podcast to talk about the documentary film being Frank the Chris CV story so it's a documentary film by Steve Sullivan um, about the musician Chris CV and Frank Sidebottom um, and as Frank, um, he's recognisable by his giant papier-mâché head with big staring eyes, um, which was a head that he wore over his head, well, over Chris's head. Um, well, like the papier-mâché head was Frank's head, um, with Chris's head inside Frank's head, or is it Frank's head inside Chris's head? <laughs> I'm getting confused. Um, <laughs> um, I uh, Yeah, the, the film takes us on an exploration of Chris Evie's musicianship, um he fronted his band the freshies um amongst various other creative projects that he did public ones and ones that he just did himself um likely lots that no one ever knew about um and he also had his band the oh blimey big band which was the one that john ronson played keyboards for which inspired the film frank um which was a different film to the one that we're talking about 
um, that was sort of a fictionalized adaptation, if you put it that way, of John Ronson's experience in Frank's band, as opposed to um, a realistic depiction of Frank. And there's um, an article of where John Ronson describes discussing the film with Chris Eby when they were making about about how much truth to portray about Frank and about Chris um, in the film. And he describes fictionalizing the whole thing as being a solution for that and for it to be as um, a quote, this is a quote from him, um, a fable instead of a biopic, a tribute to people like Frank who were just too fantastically strange to make it in the mainstream. Um, that's a quote from John Ronson from a 2014 article in The Guardian. But so me being sort of like, like I am living in, the cave of my bedroom, not finding out who most musicians are. I didn't know who Frank Sidebottom was until I um, I saw that film, Frank, um, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then that prompted me to find out about who this person was. Um, and that's how I found out about um, Frank Sidebottom and Chris Seavey. And that was before the documentary, this documentary came out, um, being Frank, the Chris Seavey story, uh, which, yeah, I also absolutely loved. I think the fact that it's a documentary um, just about such a creative person is um, like I'm excited by documentaries like that because I think it's um, a really great way to sort of meet people um, and especially to meet people who are musicians and or artists who don't call themselves musicians and or artists and um, I think that um, like because we hear about like we kind of build the narrative about who this person is through like what lots of people that knew the person very well. Um, so like in this film, you've got um, Chris's friends and family. You've got um, other you know, co-musicians, um, his manager, um, his, uh, his children. You've got a, a fan um, as well. Lots of people sort of building up just a sense of who, who Chris Evie was and, who, and the distinction between Chris and Frank as well. Um, some of which, some of those views sort of, contradict each other and then we kind of get to build our own sense of 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 what we think um this person was so the other thing i would say is that i'm aware that well i'm extremely aware that i'm talking about this film and i'm talking about Chris and frank sidebottom on an autism related podcast um and he wasn't someone that uh, was known as being autistic and didn't publicly identify as being autistic so i just want to say that i'm not doing this to intentionally try to associate him as definitely being so but it's sort of the thing where my understandings of my own creative autisticness um and like how that relates to um how he presents and like there's certain things that resonate in a this person could have been autistic and perhaps that's why those things resonate in like that kind of way but not that I necessarily think that it matters because like I think over the last like I was really ex excited when I saw the documentary because it was at a time where I was thinking about um, what I can only describe as like creative, imaginative, autistic people who sort of have some sort of sometimes obsessional um, urge to create or output. Um, and the way that autisticness or what is called autisticness um, influences that creation process and like what that creation process might um reveal about the person or all of the people inside that person involved and then what that can reveal about what we call autisticness or like any other diagnostical labels that we might explore about people um and like this th these kind of thinkings were related to my own brain experiences of i guess being a creative imaginative autistic uh like 
pretend person on the planet. <laughs> but um, I like I think when I saw the documentary, I got that completely overwhelming, exciting buzz because so much made sense to me about Chris and Frank's uh, processes um, and creativity um, in what I understand about performance of the selves. Um, and that's like that applies whether Chris was autistic or not. And there's certainly many things that can be like attributed to autistic creative beingness that remind me of like some other people that I've come across. Um, some people who publicly identify as being autistic and some who don't, but people who have this instinctive, often obsessional creative impulse, um, like other musicians have come across who just create and create and create uh, whether people are there to see it or not. And like, that's something that just resonated through this film. Um, but yeah I'll, like there's so much that I could say about this film um I could talk for days about it so um I'm looking forward to hearing what um what everyone else thinks about it thank you Samita that 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 was a really great introduction actually it was perfect um and yeah I really like how you um have drawn upon that idea of the autisticness and how um Chris Seavey and, and Frank Sidebottom and the whole film really um focuses on that kind of um the, the energies, I suppose, of, of creativity, which can be, which you can sort of connect into, I think, as an autistic creative yourself and others will will be able to do the same. Um, I think that's absolutely right. And obviously, yeah, we, we, it was it was good to point out that, that the film is not necessarily about autism. It never said, you know, Chris Sevey has never identified as autistic um, at all. But there are clear indications of um, um, some a kind of creative energy I think that goes alongside sort of neurodivergence and to a certain extent autism and um yeah it was a fascinating way to explore all of that um it's a great film it's really really great film really good documentary um just really fascinating insight into into his uh life and his creativity um but yeah go on go Alex you, you want to say something well yeah just when we're on the topic of like mm, you know, we're, we're setting a prohibition on diagnosing this man we've never met, which I think is a quite a good idea. But, um, you know, we used to have a word for this in England and we, or Britain, it was eccentricity, as we had a long tradition of it. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, does the neurodiversity paradigm cast a new light on that idea of eccentricity? Because I think the paradigm doesn't necessarily rely on diagnoses. We're just really talking about any sort of individual's neurological makeup or um, developmental makeup and how that is acceptable to exist in all sorts of ways of being in the world. So um, I think eccentricity does fit very well in the neurodiversity paradigm and it's its own form of divergence that doesn't necessarily have an, a... Uh, a diagnostic label attached to it attached to it but there is a sort of literary tradition of describing this and, and a sort of cultural tradition in the uk of, of identifying um a category just not a medical one which actually i really like i think that thing about because like i used the word eccentricity <laughs> i don't think i've said that out loud before so <laughs> it's really weird saying words um but i think like i think it's and that's another thing that i found interesting about about seeing films like this is that because you're hearing about something from other people from other people's perspective of like what 
that world that they're not necessarily in, like a world that they might enjoy, but one that they might not necessarily understand as being in it. It's kind of like hearing it from this, um, I don't know, I guess like, as I guess I relate it to my experiences of like creating, or like what is called creating, or like what to me is just being and existing. Um, and then other people sort of depicting that as like, I don't know their perspective of the world that you're in while you're creating. And like, I think some of the things that some people were saying um, about Chris, about Frank and about um, the, the world that he was making and or like the world that he was in and it being sort of different, which is something often told to autistic people about, you know, the way that they um, live as. Um, it's sort of like, like like trying to tie this together in, into words in a sentence, but like when what you were saying about, uh, you know, that description of someone being eccentric and like just thinking about what that what that means. And when we call someone else eccentric, like what do we mean by that? And then do, for example, when people have said things about the way that I create, I sometimes sit there and think, well, um, is this stuff that I make diff like because to me it's just ordinary and I still think it is. And like I'm like would would Chris have seen himself as any of those things that people were describing? Like, would he have agreed? Um, it just makes me think um, think about that. Um, okay, so, you know, yeah, there's, there's that sort of whole, I think it's called first person plural presumption, which is like, you don't realize everybody's different from you and, and, and operates in a different modality. But um, I think a lot of his, um, activities were organized around drawing attention and building a persona and building a, a sort of celebrity status and that obviously worked most successfully as Frank Sidebottom and so then it becomes much more of an inter a sort of interpersonal social phenomena um, where he is like you know very acutely aware presumably of drawing attention to himself and, and feeling like he has something to share. So, um, I mean, maybe I think it sound, uh, there's a lot of, it sounds very reasonable to think he would think of himself as normal, but I think it's hard to ignore the fact that he knew that he was drawing his attention to himself as someone who felt special and deserving of a bit of limelight. So there's a bit of a tension there in those ideas, I think. I think that's where the boundaries kind of like start to get get sort of, blurred because once you start performing like and that, like I don't know I'm, I'm someone that believes that um there's so much performance happening before you outwardly perform and once you start outwardly, outwardly creatively performing in that way and um especially with um the way that Chris went about Frank and um people had said that um made comments about how um the Frank persona had sort of overtaken a lot of the other stuff that um Chris was performing as Chris but I feel that the thing about um, can you just can you just remind me so that I have the words in my head what you were just you just said something you were saying something along the lines of um, well you were talking about performativity and how we're all performing constantly and that made me think about you know um, autistic people having to mask. So was it related to masking and performance and art creation, maybe? Oh, yeah. No, I've got it. So it was kind of like in relation to um, um, at what point, at what point, like, so we look at someone 
we might look at him deliberately performing in this way because of what he wants to achieve with his with you know with fame and um his career um but at which point is it sort of well actually that's what we think he's doing and now he's just doing stuff because that's what he's doing and um and at what point does it become well we see him as performing because he's going to a gig but at what point is he performing doing that and i think i think that's something that i relate to um as and like you know i don't i i don't know um i'm very different to to chris and frank so like um it's very different for me but um it's something that i relate to in the sense of like um i'll do what i'm doing and then um i'll go to a gig and some people might be might think well well you know you're going to a gig and you know you're going to be performing so um so surely you're aware that what you're doing is you know <laughs> is going to have the reaction that it might have but like a lot of the times I perform that because you know and I might say well you know I'm a performer I'm a musician going to a gig um but when it actually doesn't really feel like that and it just feels like I don't know what I'm doing I'm just existing so um yeah I think sometimes that like we can yeah I don't know sometimes it gets a bit blurry as to what is the performing and what is Chris performing as Frank and what is Frank just being Frank um and you know, at what point does it become something just in its own right is what it is? Yeah, it's, I mean, that whole the whole sort of labyrinth of that is really fascinating. And, and it, the, the film really, th- I think, draws that out in showing where Chris starts before he becomes Frank. And there's a, you know, there's a fairly lengthy period of time in this documentary where we've got just Chris C.V., you know, trying to become... A, a, a rock star, basically, trying to become a, a front man of a band, the Freshies, that he starts up. I mean, it, it's still, at that point, quite wacky and silly, um, but this is all pre-Frank. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting to see him, uh, the, the, the sort of almost the desperation he has to become famous um, and this desire and drive and want to become well-known. And the kind of the, the, the heartbreak, and to a certain extent, when that doesn't really happen, and it... There's a moment where his band ha- almost have a hit with a, a quite a silly song about falling in love with a, um, a, a, a checkout girl in the Virgin store in Manchester, um, which, which is, you know, starts to get radio play and starts to, people start to hear it and things like that, but it doesn't quite get to their big hit status that he's, that, they, that he's hoping for. And in a way that, that then that not having that hit then eventually leads on its pathway to him, I don't want to use the word regressing, but almost like sort of like going into finding something else and and hitting upon this Frank's character, and then that kind of taking over. And what on on that note of like performance, it's really it's quite important to say I think that one thing that really came across to me in seeing all the footage of Frank in this um, in this film is the the quality of the performance of frank like he's a really good and consistent and funny and endearing performance and one of the things what questions i kept asking myself was why was he so popular like what was it about this wacky character that really connected with people why it to a certain because to a certain extent it was like in some other respects it almost shouldn't have been popular. People should have sort of laughed him out of the room or should have like, because I just think of him like in these, in these small pokey venues in and around Manchester, 
um, in these pubs and clubs with these, what you would say are quite hard audiences to please, um, who might have taken somebody like that and just completely ridiculed them and, you know, ripped their head off and broken it up and kicked him out and think, well, you know, what is this guy? He's just being ridiculous. But instead, actually, he becomes this cult figure and he becomes this, like, people love him and people love the performance of Frank Sidebottom. And I think I was thinking a lot about this and I was thinking, well, it's partly, there's a couple of things I think going on. One is the performance itself is really good. It's silly, but he's, he's on point. He knows what he's doing. It's a, it's a, it's a very well-structured comedic set. Um, he's in control of the audience and he's got that kind of connection. So it's not like he's just this wacky person with a wacky idea who goes out. It's like he's a genuinely talented performer. The second thing being what we were talking about, um, eccentricity earlier on. Um, one of the other things that was coming across for me in this film was uh, the, the sort of willingness, I guess, of, of like people from the north of England to sort of accept eccentric characters in a sort of way. Um, like he's he's based mostly in in Timperley which is a small town um a small sort of satellite town of Manchester but he's active very was very active in Manchester I currently live in Manchester and I'm from Preston um originally which is just down the road so I've grown up in the kind of northwest and there is this appetite and this taste for the slightly eccentric character who perhaps um who perhaps exists in a sort of better way up here because there's something about especially about Lancashire actually and, and the Manchester area where there's a kind of a spirit of eccentricity that people can that the people up here embrace and pay perhaps more than than tends to happen in somewhere like London or somewhere more southern and it's something to do with that northern spirit it's something to do with that kind of slightly amateur um uh kind of knockabout feel that that really I think connects with people up, up in this part of the country and so yeah and I think that all sort of is a kind of happy combination really that that, that seemed to make Frank Sidebottom this this lovable and enjoyable character who had this this pretty incredible following um up in these parts and you know I he's still a, a big figure up here and and there's a couple of like um bits of graffiti in the in the Manchester city centre with Frank. There's one um that I always walk past where he's got his thumbs up and I, I always say hello to him whenever I walk past him. Um so it's uh yeah it's it, it's really nice to see. And yeah it's just fascinating to 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 pick apart that those bits of performance, I guess. Because clearly Chris Seavey has always been a good performer, but it's only maybe when he puts that head on and, and becomes frank that, that that real talent starts to sort of embed in and, and come out. But then, of course, he sort of gets taken over by it and overwhelmed by it. But, uh, yeah, really interesting. Can I just uh, add a little detail about a sort of British tradition of comedy? I think we're sort of tapping it. I mean, I saw Frank Sidebottom as a sort of hybrid of Vic Rees and Bob Mortimer's sort of surrealist humour and Mr Blobby, which is actually quite hard to explain to anyone who's not British. Uh, Mr Blobby is sort of a, a sort of seven foot pink yellow polka dot sex offender that used to run around Saturday evening television sort of shows. Noel's house party. Noel's Noel house party, yeah. right. And just cause chaos. Um, and it's really funny and just looks a bit dark now you look at it as an adult but yeah it's this sort of like controlled chaos like we know 
basically what the parameters are. It's not going to go too far, but it is exciting. It puts you on the edge of the seat as because you don't really know what's going to happen. And I think that's the appeal um, that Frank really represented. Uh, yeah. Um, Samita, I think you were going to say something. Um, yeah, no, just well, I was going to say something, what along the lines of what you just said just then, um, that is what that actually really reminds, like, um, and talking about um, autisticness again, or like even not necessarily autisticness, but just neurodivergentness. I think that kind of just it just a lot of that reminds me of just what I've seen in neurodivergent live art practice and like what I've seen of neurodivergent live artists um, performing and and being and just expressing this internal like which what um a lot of people really like because they relate to it and they might relate to it and it might not be the stuff that they express but they connect to it in a certain way or other people that kind of don't get it in that way might just like it because they find it bizarre um or or different um but also um going back to the um eccentricity thing i just found this this quote from the film which um, says, um, Frank didn't want to be exposed as a normal human being, which he wasn't. And I find that interesting to look at because like that kind of that. Um, so like, I mean, what you were saying before, yeah, you're right in that, you know, he didn't he didn't want to be seen as normal. And so he was performing in this way. But then when you look at the facts that someone else said that about him, it's kind of like he didn't want to be exposed as a normal human being. So that's he didn't want to be exposed as to what to him was a normal human being um, and like his views of what being a normal human being was. And then this person had said, which he wasn't. So that's someone else's perception of him. Um, it's that's, a, I haven't really explained that very well, but I think what I'm trying to say is that um, like what Frank might have viewed as what a normal human being was may not be the same as what someone else might view as what a normal human being is and say so when you have a sentence like that kind of like I always kind of want to think about what does that mean um and like there was the stuff about when I was reading about um the John Ronson article about um talking to Chris about before um the fictionalized film Frank was um put out um there was a thing about um him not I don't have the quote in front of me but um there was a thing about him not wanting to sort of be revealed as like Chris the sort of traumatized musician or like knowing how much of that to put in and like does that mean is that kind of then realizing that mental health and like that's something that kind of comes up in a lot of music documentaries and like articles about art, like artists and things like mental health related things but that kind of like reveals well like mental health experiences like that as being normalized human experiences which is another a different side to it being is like oh this is a different thing that this this person went through and like there's a lot of there's a lot of people that just feel that like you know have this perception of to be this kind of artist or musician or whatever you have to go through this bad mental health experience and stuff like that like so there's all those kind of myths and stuff but then it kind of makes me wonder how normalized a lot of those experience like how maybe I need a different word for normal, like uh, majorified, I guess, those experiences are for creative people, like not only because of just their creativity, but just because of their particularly, uh, maybe experiences of being somehow different or different to people around them or something. Um, 
yeah, you're going to say something, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like one of the most dangerous themes in the art world that, you know, I remember going to my my foundation and, you know, the template was Van Gogh and we had to like go through some sort of acute suffering in order to have something to make art about. And I think it's, it's terrifying, the idea of that message being everywhere in art schools. And I definitely, I was a victim of it, you know, I was, you know, abusing my mind with uh, illicit drugs at that age because I sort of wanted some sort of experience to sort of give me an edge, give me something to really think about and to make work about. And uh, it really backfired in a profound way <laughs> and uh, ended up in a psychiatric ward. So don't do that, kids. And um, yeah, I think it's really, really dangerous. Um, but at the same time, you know, I ended up making loads of films about it. So I don't really know what to think about the whole thing, <laughs> but it's like I set myself on a path and I just had to commit to it in the end. It's really interesting, isn't it, in a way, because I think that um, we've almost got this weird kind of feedback loop going off on because there's this, yeah, there's this myth within the arts and the world, of the broad world of the arts that you have to be this suffering genius who goes through all of these pains in order to create this, this, these wonderful visions of, of art or film or literature, whatever it is. But really perhaps what has happened or is happening is because the people who want to create these works of art are historically and present day are the neurodivergent who haven't got the opportunity to enter into these worlds of, of, the art world and the cultural world and the social world um, because they're not set up in a way for these people or not opened up for these people. And so the suffering is as a, I don't know if I'm being a bit broad here, but maybe the suffering is as a result of um, the, the sort of the, the non-acceptance, I guess, of neurodiverse divergence. And therefore that suffering then pushes these people into further realms of just like having to live in their art world and then they create the genius and then suddenly that comes you know you're talking about someone like van gogh or, or what have you that comes out into the wider world and everyone goes oh wow this is new and fresh and different and like this is groundbreaking and uh we've never seen this sort of thing this is smashing down the boundaries and so on um and then that, that kind of the, the suffering narrative becomes very convenient story i suppose to to attach to the the creation of these things whereas maybe we just need to be better at allowing neurodivergent people the space to create art because they more they perhaps naturally are just very good at good at it and just are like creating something that is genuinely fresh and new and have this almost this this resistance to wanting to just create the same thing as everybody else or just to sort of fit that the 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 parameters or the um the frameworks that we've sort of established for things it's interesting though because like the the music that chris cv is making when he's not frank in some ways is quite standard it's almost quite sort of i don't know there's nothing particularly particularly exciting about his side of solo music for me anyway I mean subjectively but like it's fairly just a fairly gentle kind of romantic pop 80s sort of pop music it's only when it gets into being frank that he's he's doing something there's a strain of something unusual and weird going on and he's like you know plonking his the plonking the keyboard and and singing 
little ditties that don't quite rhyme or don't quite structurally fit within the sentence of the of the um the, the rhythm of the, the music or their kind of variations on popular th- songs from Joy Division or the Smiths or other kind of Manchester-based um, indie bands, uh, all with this edge of comedy, all with this kind of knockabout stuff, with all with bits of cardboard and figures around him and so on. Um, so it's like, I think almost that it, f- it seems to me that Frank Sidebottom as a character enabled Chris to maybe shed some of those hang-ups he had about trying to hit what the popular and the correct way of get you know way of getting famous and way of making music and making art was by putting that big head on and becoming this strange alter ego character it i i wonder if it allowed him a little bit to sort of connect with the more true bits of his art in a way i don't know i'm not sure i mean i think the I mean, the character Frank started off as like a mega fan, right? It was like this annoying character who'd like follow them around to gigs and get in the way and cause havoc. And it was meant to be a sideshow, um, but then it just was so popular it took over. But I think what Frank really allowed Chris to do was parody himself. So he'd taken himself quite seriously as a musician and that had backfired. You know, that you'd mentioned earlier the single the girl that who worked at the counter at the Virgin Megastore. They had to, they got very close to getting a lot of radio play and singles and stuff. Um, but then there was a copyright issue with mentioning Virgin Megastore since they had to change it to like some off-brand gen- generic uh, title, which I thought was a sort of interesting anti-capitalist statement. I think that theme is there throughout his, his portfolio of work. But um I think this idea of parody and subversion is really what uh, Frank was able to do very fluently. And by detaching his sort of normative identity from the work, it meant that he could very successfully detach from the earnest ambitions he had everywhere else in his, in his practice and be more free. But it was also, there was something quite self-destructive about it because you know, performing other people's songs, but doing it deliberately badly um, is a sort of, a, a sort of almost a violence against music, you know, like the, it, there's an anger in it somewhere, I think. And that, you know, this whole idea of artists suffering, maybe, you know, neuro, neurotypical society or hegemony or whatever we want to call it, um, sort of needs those moral stories of tragedy and suffering in order to accept this kind of difference and 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 it says quite a lot about society that's very cautious of neurodivergence um i've almost got a complete thought here but i don't quite i think um yeah i mean i i also think i mean i i think it is a a harmful thing where it's like every um every time there's someone that's ex- like extremely creative um it's kind of like there's always you know that instinctual urge to, to to yeah to think about trauma and suffering and things like that and um it's kind of but then at the same time it's sort of like I always get tangled up in in it because um of just how to just how to approach it really like and I guess it's, it's similar it's similar to like um talking about um autism things and things like that because 
it's it's that thing about wanting to to be like oh you know this is this is how I am it's nothing to do with this whereas acknowledging that that stuff does exist maybe for other reasons but that experience does exist alongside it and um it's kind of like how to be able to tell someone's story when there has been trauma or suffering without kind of like playing into that that sort of that sort of other narrative that I the bit about it that I find harmful like how to be able to say this thing is here um I realized that this is a podcast and they can't see my hands and I'm talking with my hands <laughs> but um but what 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 you said David earlier about the um uh you said you were talking about um the fact that people just you know uh, about making you know more spaces for neurodivergent people to make art and people just wanting to do stuff and there's a, a, a another quote here from the film while it was a in Chris's writing um which um comes up on the screen and it says what am I trying to do you may well ask well all I'm trying to do is make a living doing what I like that's all I write songs and record and would like to be able to keep doing that because I enjoy it I'd like to have a tv show I'd like to have cheese on toast for tea but most of all I want to be in the driving seat I get more out of it if I know I've done it myself um and that just just reminds me of like essentially like what a lot of people just want to do is just exist in the way that they exist and like just be able to do what they need to do and output the stuff that they need to output and just be. Um, and I guess um, a solution for that for the Chris was, um, you know, like to to make records, to make stuff, to um, to yeah, to get famous and to be successful in that way. But I believe that essentially it was just so that he could just do what he wanted to do um, and to just just yeah, to just just be. Um, so like if if there were easier ways of just of people being able to do that and like this thing about um the need to, to be able to like be in control of stuff and do stuff yourself it's like that's something that I relate to and that's something that is so difficult when you are neurodivergent in a um you know in this in a, like when when it's kind of things don't it's so diff like you need to do everything yourself and that's where you felt it's like but you can't it's like it's hard to get help because you need to do things yourself how can you be supported to do things yourself and how can you be supported to get the help when you need to do everything yourself? It's just this constant thing. And that's why I think a lot of people end up, um, end up, um, you know, suffering or being unwell or having a very difficult time with it. Um, it's, you know, not necessarily because of how they are, but of just, just trying to exist, um, as they are. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it's, it, it's, um, it's interesting to think of Chris and Frank as, I suppose, as kind of, very radical figures who are kind of um, in, a, in in quite a gentle way, in some respects, resistant to um, resistant to the to the structures of society, and a little bit kind of talking back to society a little bit. But of course, it's also worth noting that um, in some ways, it it surprised me quite how mercenary Chris was. In some ways, he's because. There's a the, the documentary touches on the fact that he doesn't pay his taxes quite a lot, and he doesn't like he's uh, there's stories of like bailiffs coming round to the house and taking their taking the TV away whilst the kids are watching it, and this this story is told by his um, his ex wife in in a talking head who says like yeah the kids were just watching the TV and the bailiffs came and they they took the TV away and it's all quite quite amusing and quite funny but in real serious terms 
he's he doesn't seem to be interested in like um uh, being involved with the social structures of life um to the extent that he doesn't pay his taxes and he gets in huge amount of debt and he and this does cause a lot of problems it, it leads him um it leads to tr- troubles with his relationships and with his family um he does it at one point um they talk about he he becomes an alcoholic and he starts to sleep around i think with with women as well so that he does sort of to a certain extent go off the rails quite a lot um and doesn't necessarily look after himself and i thought that was quite interesting in some ways because it was all part and part of his self-destruction in a way i guess but um but yeah this kind of like just flat refusal to 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 not not only is he not being like conformative he's not conforming to the some of the ideas that we have about how people should be or how performance should be he's also just like not contributing to society by not paying his taxes so there's like there's a strange extent to it that 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 then becomes problematic and destructive and uh difficult um and the the people who were interviewed in the in the in the in the film are very nice about this all of this um but there is a kind of there's a darker strain to this where, where his actions do end up um causing harm for the people that he's for his family and for his wife and for his uh for his kids as well um and there's there's clear difficulties around that i think um but yeah but i do think that that was yeah that was all quite interesting i mean i find it in- like and maybe this maybe this is for another conversation but i do find it interesting comparing um chris and frank in this film um to there's a couple of other documentaries one is the yoyoi kasama um documentary infinity net well that's the book i don't know what film was called infinity maybe um and the other one is um i am a cliche um which is the documentary about musician polystyrene um and i think it would just be it would be really interesting to sort of to make comparisons between (laughs) between the situations that were happening in those films um because i think i think um like it's interesting to think of what like what could what could a person create if they were just allowed to just to create as much as they wanted to create and as much as they could create and I'm thinking about just a lot of the restrictions that um um Yuyoi Kusama and um Polystyrene may have had in their creativity while essentially trying to do the same thing that Chris Seavey was doing um and that Frank was doing like what just where these differences might come up and where like just I don't know um yeah that's, that's something else to talk about I think well it seems like we're advocating universal basic income but uh that's not going to work if you don't pay your taxes so uh Chris wasn't quite quite the uh anti-capitalist he, he could have been you know um I I wanted to draw the conversation back to this idea of performativity so we have Chris, who we don't know what his sort of neurodivergent status is, and I feel quite comfortable with the term eccentric, but maybe that's problematic as well, but whatever, something's happening where he's he's uh, uh, quite a distinctive personality. And so we were talking a little bit about what that must have been like performing that way um, in everyday life and, and the sort of performativity of fitting in and 
all that kind of stuff that echoes some of the discussions we've had before around masking. And then we talked about how uh, Frank is, Frank's eye bottom is this sort of um, extra layer of very, very conscious and deliberate performance. And then um, Samita was talking about how actually there's a sort of potential seamlessness between those two types of performativity. And it just all started to sound a lot like um, sort of Judith Butler's sort of queer theory type of performativity theory and the way that we're all sort of constantly constructing ourselves consciously for the benefit of others and the norms in society and uh, how those norms are actually quite interesting things to be playful with. So that theory, you know, performativity and, and, and queer theory um, it is a sort of foundational element of neuroqueering. And um, I think, you know, I get the suspicion, David, you might have more read more about this than me, but so feel free to take the floor, but um, it certainly maybe is a maybe more useful sort of lens to look through uh, neuroqueering um, for the topic of this film. Yeah, I, I can I can try and say some stuff about the, the neuroqueer. I haven't touched it for a, a short while, but um, yeah, uh, no, I, I think that's very very much uh, valid to say that that it, yeah, there's a there's a neuroqueerness to certainly to the performance of Frank and to the performativity and and how um, that speaks a lot to how. Uh, the, the process of masking for autistics and other neurodivergence and how there has to be this kind of persona placed upon yourself in order to enter into the social sphere in a way. Um, a lot of, uh, if people if people listening to the podcast are interested in learning more about neuroqueerness, uh, the, 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 I think the three key uh, authors to read about this are um, uh, Remy Yergo, who, who, uh, when the Remy published their book was called Melanie Yergo uh, and uh, wrote a book called Authoring Autism, um, which is uh, talks about neuroqueerness. There's also Julie Miele Rodas's Autistic Disturbances, which is about kind of neuroqueerness and uh, aesthetics and poetics and art. And then um, Nick Walker, who's very recently published a book, which I haven't read about uh, yet, about, um, about neuroqueer. Uh, as I understand neuroqueerness, when I think of neuroqueerness, what I sort of think of is um, the uh, deliberate um, performance, I suppose, of autisticness, of things like stimming and things like um, unusual, perhaps unusual ways of communicating and speaking or, um, or bodily behaviours or ways of being that are traditionally suppressed or tried to sort of be that are tried that are kind of erased um whether that's deliberately through interventionist behavioral therapy or if it's just as a result of the expectations that we place upon how people shouldn't behave in in normal society quote unquote normal um, and neuroqueerness is a way of recognizing the the difference that neurodivergence brings, and not only recognizing it but embracing it, and then making it your, or and then sort of allowing it to to burst out, and then using that um, process of 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 those strains of difference to speak back to power and to um, to 
reinform how we all think about identity and and who we can be um much the same way that that that, that, that queerness did, did the same thing but with neuroqueerness it's the you know it's the focus is on um natural uh behaviors and instincts of the neurodivergent and uh, it's a very powerful and interesting idea and concept and it does help us to think through um when we start to relate it to things like cinema and, and art more generally uh it helps us to think through how we can use these forms to to explore um uh, and to explore and express this way of being and not only how we use them but also how they've already been used in the past to 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 do that and the ways that we can look back at certain works of art and works of literature and film that have um uh, that perhaps have been produced or created in the, within this kind of neurodivergent framework and there's definitely there's definitely an air of that with with frank sidebottom um you know the absurdity of him and the the quirkiness of him and um and the kind of chaos and messiness and sort of homemade feel of it all as well uh, speaks to all of that because it's not um clean cut and it's not it is anarchic in in a very in a in a in a sort of traditionally british way but it's very um knockabout and rough there's there's a so there's a there's a theater writer that i really like uh, there's a guy called peter brook who was a um a theater director and has written a lot about the theater and one of the, the theories that um i think of when i think of peter brook is he came up with this idea of things thing called rough theater which is um this idea that uh theater really works brilliantly when it's kind of rough around the edges and it's just knocked together and it's just sort of like you can see the sets wobbling and the and the, the costumes are just knocked together from stuff that you've got at home and uh there's a real energy in the room because everyone's a little bit amateur um and it doesn't matter and the audience come along with that and there's there's a kind of magic that's generated in that moment and i could see a lot of that with the frank sidebottom performances like he he didn't really care necessarily about things being perfect or in fact he didn't want them to be he wanted to to them to be rough and ready and um and some of that rubs rubs up against the kind of traditional ideas that we might think of how we should do these things um and i think that a lot of that does speak to kind of a neuroqueer attitude i think potentially um i think uh wobbly theater sets and all that kind of stuff um that reminded me a little bit of the Guardian article. Uh, it was just a, a sort of summary of what's on TV. Uh, so like not a very in-depth article, but they characterized Frank Sidebottom as an outsider artist. And I got a little shiver down my spine. <laughs> you know, I think that 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 terminology really is quite othering and its roots are in a sort of, you know, uh, actually quite a, a colonial attitude in sort of early 20th century around what, what was called in adverted commas primitivism and uh you know like western artists moving um touring places like in africa and finding sculptures and, and marveling over how these these uh artists were able to create such interesting things like it, it was all very creepy um but that same energy got turned in inwards and, and people started paying attention to the kind of artwork that was being made in psychiatric wards but art brute was was like uncooked basically uncooked art and the whole idea was somehow 
these figures were outside of society, outside of culture, and were working in the arts, starting from scratch without influence, um, which is a total fantasy, you know, obviously. Maybe there was a few people who'd been institutionalized all their lives and tortured in that way, who um, found themselves in that circumstance. But it, you know, in, the, in a multimedia sort of uh, consumer society, it's, it's utterly impossible. And, you know, the outsider art is really an extension of that um, idea of somehow these people are different and they're and they're other and and they're doing work that um, is not is not subscribing to the so the, the traditions of the movement or the artistic sort of world and um, yeah I just think it's I don't, I, I'm not really gonna swear but I think it is a load of uh, whatever <laughs> um, yeah so. I guess it, it's very easy to to sort of slip into sort of old terminology, and, I, and I'd, I'd be very very cautious with it. Really, I think uh, the Museum of Everything is a much has a much better attitude around uh, artwork made by people who don't fit various norms, and they refuse to use that term outside of art. So there there are, you know, it has progressed. So that's really good. But yeah, I, yeah. I mean, also the the idea of parodying other songs is clearly not anything to do with being outside of tradition. It's it's a deliberate subversion. I also wanted to say something about um, multiplicity because, like, I think um, something that we were saying about earlier about um, when we were talking about um, uh, um, some something you said, David, about when you were talking about um, the neuroqueer stuff reminded me of like the fact that. Um, it somehow at some point became norm for for us to sort of have this need to present as this one being like this is who I am this is my identity this is what we are and as soon as you start expressing multiple parts of yourself that might contrast or contradict each other it suddenly starts being seen as something that is um either not normal or something that's some you know something's going on with you or it becomes diagnosable or something um and like in relation to this film like uh, Chris is Chris Chris is Frank Chris is little Frank um which is like a little cardboard um mini version of um of Frank described as um sort of a described in the film as being like an unruly child um controlling Frank even though Frank's the one that's controlling little Frank. Um, but um, but like this is an example of someone expressing like various parts of themselves through these different different forms. And I think like it's something that I mean, I it's something that I believe that um everyone is sort of you know multiple in some way, um, but through the ways that we form our identities and express our identities, it's sort of become this norm to sort of try and present as as one thing. And I think that actually makes it more likely um, for someone who, like, if someone has all of these different things within them that they're then repressing or restricting themselves from expressing in different ways because they're different, I feel like that's actually what makes it more likely for a person to become unwell because of it, um, rather than the thing being the unwellness to begin with. Um, 
I don't know what else I was, I've like lost my like string. <laughs> I think it's absolutely spot on to me. And I, 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 yeah, that, I think you've articulated that really well. I really like that the idea that, um, yeah, so much of our society and culture has been about us trying to find our, our, our one self, our individual, who, who we are, I guess. And like, um, and, and, and to sort of present as an individual, as an, as a, as a singular consistent being but one of the wonderful things about the idea of neurodiversity and the wonderful thing is about autism um is exactly that multiplicity is it shows us that we are all different at different times i mean even just down to the day to day like if you've not eaten properly or you've not slept properly you're a slightly different person right and 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 there's no necessarily no real need to pathologize that and to, to turn that into a a medical thing now it, it can be helpful to to identify things like you know bipolar and um uh you know adhd and things like this because th there are ways to it's good to have that recognition and to to understand how to control your own dips and, and peaks and troughs and and so on as a person but um what's what's good is what's better is to be able to recognize that that, that that does exist within all of us and that we should all stop chasing this ideal one vision that we have um and that that yeah you're absolutely right that that then becomes toxic when we we do try and try and be that perfect godly individual the whole time all the way all the way through um one of the things I wanted to ask was about the moment in the film, which seems to come at quite a key moment, um, when um, when when we see Frank unmask, when we when we actually see the head come off and Chris being revealed underneath, and there's quite a surprising moment actually because you see that he's wearing a nose clip for that whole time, and that's how he does the kind of Frank voice because he's got this kind of nose clip on the whole the whole way through, and then there's a sequence of 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 shots of him, you know, sort of looking exhausted with the nose clip on, looking really sweaty, and um, the Frank head is next to him, and there's also a brief moment where the camera looks inside the Frank head, and you can see all the like bits of foam and stuff that he's packed in there to keep it comfortable and stuff. I thought that was quite a startling moment, particularly because um, the film does make a point near the beginning of saying that while Chris was Frank, there was sort of a bit of a mystery around who the person inside was. And he actually never, he actually was very careful about never removing that head and never revealing who he was, never unmasking himself, never taking, it was always in that Frank character until he was somewhere private and then you would take the head off. Um, and I wondered about, is the film doing a kind of, I, I suppose it's okay, but it, like, is the film doing a bit of a violence in showing the removal of the Frank head? Um, is it okay for that mystery to be erased? I mean, this is the Chris Seavey story. That is, that's the title of the film, right? The second part of the title of the film. So it's always going to be about Chris, but there was some part of me that was a bit like, there's something important there about the mystery of who's inside Frank and, and, and is it being ruined a little bit by revealing Chris? I don't know. I don't know what people thought about that. Totally. Yeah. I thought it was a complete betrayal, <laughs> but, um, and I think it was just a matter of timing. You know, he set this out to the, the very last act of the documentary is um, Chris sort of 
after he's spent a few years working in animation, which I thought was really exciting hearing about him just turn up at the set of Bob the Builder and not leave until he got a job, which is like a great tactic. Um, after that, he set himself a five-year plan that was going to culminate in him taking the, the mask off um, at the biggest performance he'd be able to arrange for himself and, and then anchoring all the success of Frank Sidebottom to Chris Seavey and then that opening up his career to do music as Chris Seavey. Um, but he never got to that because he sadly died of cancer before the completion of the five-year plan. Um, but they, they revealed the head way before that. They revealed him taking the head off to tell this story about how he was exhausted with it and how he needed a break, basically, around and tied that into the stories of infidelity and alcoholism and stuff like that. So it really felt like punching him when he was down to me to, like, breached the one rule that he had um and i think it maybe it would have been okay if it was really them enacting his wishes at the very climax of the film um but that is not what they did see i felt the point that that happened because i mean one of and um, like one of the moments that, that sticks with me is that bit where we see we see the in, that inside bit of the head and like that like to me it's like it's like a really emotional thing for me like just i don't know like I don't know why it affected me so much. Just see, it, like, just seeing it like that. I don't know, like the in, the inside out kind of because and like while trying to, I guess like, it, for me that the point where that was was when the voiceovers what, what people were narrating was kind of about what they where they felt the distinction was between Chris and Frank, which like to me is like um, a topic that I get quite tangly at um, anyway with my own my own things, my own understandings of what those things are. And I think like um, thinking about where that was placed kind of like it kind of, um, it made me feel it, or it made me imagine or try to imagine what other people were kind of thinking when they were trying to gain an understanding of um, someone performing as more than one thing and like what that, how that relates to their sense of self and like it kind of I don't know it kind of make um like having having the visual there of like I don't know because people had said different things about it and like thinking that some people thought okay well it's it's very clear cut when he's got the head on he's this thing when he's got the head off he's not this thing um but then actually when you and then when you see it with the footage of like the inside the inside of it it kind of like to me it made me think well like what like we're, we're, see, we're seeing sort of a story of people piecing together something about someone I don't know I guess kind of like it made me think about that from the perspective of being inside inside that that thing that head and like kind of um I don't know and then like um because of the way that I process and like watching that is like um you know, watching someone, watching that about someone else because of the way that I process I'm then watching that in relation to me and myself. And that is kind of like a bit disturbing because it's like then me imagining that with it, my own things and kind of, I don't know, um, I can't really explain it properly in words, but it was kind of, yeah, but like what you said, Alex, about um, it kind of maybe being better placed for the reasons that you described, like that makes sense to me, but I hadn't thought of it in that way um, before you said it, but that does, I do 
kind of agree with that as well at the same time as feeling like it was well placed because of what I thought but yeah I'll think about it <laughs> yeah it's interesting yeah I, I I agree with um with both of you what you're saying that I am um, the moment where he takes that head off and he, he literally just have to to twist it it's just, so it's almost as if he's killing Frank in a way he's like really he's like like doing the kind of ninja twist where you break someone's neck. He has to twist the head and lift it off. And then you see him underneath. And in a strange way, it's sort of disappointing because it's like, oh, there's just a normal bloke underneath all of this. Um, and another way it's like, oh, there goes Fra there, Frank just dissipates. It just disappears in that moment, which is really unsettlingly uncanny and strange. And then, yeah, we get that love, that weird shot, that quite interesting shot of the inside of his head, which I also found really quite enigmatic. Um, it lent a certain amount of, um, it sort of gave you a sense of the materiality of the actual head itself. And it made me start to think, oh yeah, it, it was probably quite uncomfortable wearing that for long periods of time. And like, especially as in his, if he's in like a dark, sweaty club somewhere in the middle of summer, it must have been so hard to put that on or running around a football pitch, whatever it is. Like he's, he's just doing all sorts of things, wading through canals with it on, like, it, it, and it did make me start to think, well, how, what has he done there to make sure that he's always comfortable inside that head? Or or did he ever start feeling faint, what have you? And it, it makes you think a little bit of the physicality and the materiality of it, um, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, I, I think I slightly agree with you there, Alex. I wonder if they maybe should have not have done that reveal moment until later. But then the other side of it is that when he does take the head off, he looks exhausted and it it kind of does make me feel sorry for him again at that point. And I wonder maybe if they'd have put it at the end, it, it might, it might have just struck slightly struck the wrong tone and whether it would have been a little bit of a kind of almost a tragic image to look to sort of end on potentially. I mean, I, I, I was, I was, you know, I think you get, if you get anybody after a gig, they'll look exhausted. It's just a, a mark of working hard. Um, and yeah, sure, it would have been hot, but I mean, he designed it himself. And as soon as he didn't like it, he stopped doing it. Or maybe not immediately, but you know, um, it was his choice. And, you know, he gave himself a very narrow window in the mouth to look through. And it was all quite restrictive, but that could have been a preference uh, for all we know, you know, maybe, the world is slightly overstimulating in some senses. And so having a cushioned uh, head on you could be helpful. I don't know. It's true, potentially. Uh, sorry, Samita, go for it. Oh, no, I was just going to say, but the other thing about the revealing of, of the head thing is kind of like, I kind of, I kind of like the idea of people beginning to understand that, like, 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 yeah, when, when he had the head on, he was performing as, as Frank. Um, but like, I'd like people to understand that perhaps a lot of those things that he was performing as, um, when he was performing as Frank were within him when he appeared as, as Chris, whether he was outwardly expressing them or not, like as a person. And I think, um, I think, um, for some people to think, oh, well, like, you know, that it's as clear cut as it looks like when someone looks like this, that's what they are. When someone looks like this, that's what they are. Like, I think that's quite, it's quite interesting for, for like, you know, but then what do you, you know, when it's, you see Chris is Chris holding the head um, and it's kind of like, um, just, yeah, I don't know. 
um, I don't have an end to that sentence, but. Well, yeah, I wanted to jump in earlier when we were talking about, you know, I think bipolar came up at one point and performativity about, you know, or multiplicity really. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of those people who has a fluctuation in affect uh, that has a diagnosis attached to it. And, um, you know, I love being able to see the world through totally different lenses over a period of months um, as it shifts. But also that sort of experience makes you quite aware of the subtle changes that happen in, in us all the time. So I sometimes feel like a totally different person compared, depending on who I'm talking to, because I'm so aware of the sort of performance of mirroring them and and trying to adapt to what their needs might be or how to be the most entertaining version of myself in their eyes. And I think the, re the outward appearance is that, oh, here's Alex, he's, he's a bit of a character, let's say, and, it, and I have a very clear sort of identity to other people, but to me it feels like if you were to peel off all the layers, all these different sort of oscillating personas, um, there's just nothing at the end of it. There's no core. It's just, we're just built up of all these layers. And, and that's always, well, not always, but that's how I've been talking about it for a good, like, 10 years. That's how it feels to me. To me, Alex, you're just a very soothing voice on the other end of a, a Zoom call and a podcast recording. So, you know, you've got nothing else there uh, for, for, that you need to perform for, to me. Um, one of the things I was conscious that we've been talking for pretty much over an hour now, but I, one of the things I wanted to touch on before we finish was the code, which I thought was really interesting. I loved the, the, co the, the reveal of the code. So um, for context, this is that we start to see a lot of um, Chris's artwork um, Towards, in the sort of second half of the film, there's a lot of kind of um, cartoons and comics and things like that drawn of Frank in various costumes and various places and situations. It's all very good and very colourful and very bright and interesting. And at one point he has an, uh, an art show where he just like is just sticking everything up on the wall and, and everyone comes to see it. But um, what we get on these bits of art, which are all various different things. There's lots of these colorful borders, which have these symbols on them. And at one point um, he says that, that there's a code locked in this, on in these symbols and these colors. Um, and then we get a reveal right at the end of the film um, in the credits that, um, that for a long time, people just thought he was joking around, but there genuinely is a code and it was sent to GCS, GCHQ and during one of GCHQ's downtime sessions or their kind of staff building exercises or something, they cracked his code and revealed that he was indeed writing some things around the borders of the, these bits of art. Um, I just thought it was really interesting and um, I wonder what people thought of this. I and mean, when, they, when they cracked the code, it wasn't there wasn't anything particularly revealing in there. It was just his, you know, normal, pretty normal, silly phrases and so on that he liked to sort of bandy around. But yeah, I don't know. I wonder if anyone had any reflections on the code. Um, I mean, I was just going to say that when it got to that bit and all of those bits of the film where it is um, all of these these drawings and lists of things and like um, things that he'd written and like um, what was like football team stuff and like all of these, this... Um, like just all of that stuff just re just so strongly just reminded me of of being a kid because like whether that's related to being neurodivergent I don't know but just reminded me of just 
drawing things, writing things, writing out, co- making codes, just like for anything, the most pointless stuff, making like I've, I've even found like a letter that I wrote to Santa, which I wrote with a code, with a key attached to it, with a key to the code. <laughs> and again, I don't know if this is a neurodivergent thing, an autistic thing, or just um, a thing, but um, but that I I loved that bit about the the borders and the the thing. And like, didn't they? Because they found the code in the back of his phone book, didn't they? Like the um, the key to the code. Um, and um, I think there's something there about kind of um, create like because he's clearly someone that enjoyed creating his own worlds and um, um, sort of like that just and I, I love the idea of that um, like because they said that when um, when he was making this this highly detailed artwork for for these magazines if something was gonna like if something was gonna cover up a bit of the code then like that was like they had to move it so that. Um, the code could be seen even though no one knew what it, what it meant and um i think this thing about creating and putting things out into the world um and like knowing that there's something there that people don't know about um is like quite an important thing because i think um like in terms of like sharing sharing your artwork and creating your worlds and sharing stuff and um that's it's always really nice to have stuff to like not show everything and to have things that you don't that you don't share um that you just just private private art world type stuff um even when you're even when you're sharing things in the most public way there's always it's always worth doing something like like for him that was really important well it's um in film it's called easter eggs you know these little um details that are hidden in and famously in pixar are, are a big fan of easter eggs and include lots of coded messages within their films um, you know, references to their origins as a company and all that kind of stuff and other movies within different universes. Um, I mean, I've even done it in my own films thinking like, oh, this is going to be so obvious. Everyone's going to notice immediately. You know, I, I had a, a poster of Queen on the wall of my brother's bedroom and I replaced the Royal Emblem with the Royal College of Arts like, emblem. And I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I mean... That's so funny, yeah. and no one has ever, ever noticed or commented, or it's not even that easy to see. But it felt, you know, meaningful. I don't know why, but I wanted to spend an hour on that, and it was worthwhile to me. Yeah, this is interesting, isn't it? Because clearly he'd spent an awful lot of time um, writing out this code every time around all the borders of everything that he's done, and he's clearly spent a lot of time just drawing all of the drawings and the cartoons that he draws. There's one moment where... Um, there's a flyer, I think, or something like that, and there's a he the, the the bricks in the background of the of the of the cartoon on this flyer are all like individually dotted with with various dots, and it's clear that they just spent so much time and effort on it, and it's not out of any need. It's just sort of a the, the joy and the pleasure of 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 being in that world, and and I mean, he must have been so happy, I think, when he was creating this stuff and these comics and these cartoons and that that really came across i think right then listen we've uh, we've been chatting for ages and um i'm sure that there was loads more that we could have said there but it's been uh, really wonderful to uh, explore the world of frank sidebottom and chris cv through this film being frank the chris cv story um and uh, i hope our listeners are, have enjoyed uh, listening to it and i would very much encourage everyone to go and check it out and check out some of the side frank sidebottom 
videos on YouTube. There's loads of them to watch, and they're all very amusing, especially Panic on the Streets of Timperley, which I was laughing along to the other day. Um, so, uh, so I'll, yeah, I'll just I'll say thank you to to Alex for for joining us as ever. Thank you very much, Alex, um, and a very special thank you to Sumita. Uh, thanks for bringing this film along. Thanks also, you can't see this on the podcast, but thanks for wearing the Being Frank t-shirt that you're wearing at the moment, which has been great to, to look at. Um, and thank you for all your thoughts on the film. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. No, thanks for inviting me on. It's been fun. Great. And yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. All right, that's it. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, but until then, goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.